0: Hey guys, Felix here. A couple of quick things before we dive into the show. We had some sound issues with small dropouts whenever I was talking during the live stream. Devon's audio was luckily unaffected. Apologies if this spoils your listening experience and we'll make sure to fix this issue for any future episodes. On another note, there's a part in the show in the first 10 minutes where we discuss a recent conference presentation that contained themes of mental health and suicide risk. If these themes are a cause of concern for you, please consider reaching out to your local support services. We've added a few links from the English-speaking world in the show notes. But now, without further ado, back to this month in self-enablement, November edition.
1: Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence.
0: Hello, everybody. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's (laughs) another episode of this month in sales enablement. We're back with the November edition. I'm as always joined by the fabulous Devin McDermott. Devin, how are you today?
1: Felix, I'm wonderful. And as always, I am just honored to be here with you talking enablement trends, conferences, jobs, everything in between. So I am fantastic.
0: Excellent. Excellent. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I I'm, uh, might have heard through my LinkedIn post that I'm uh, working on this online course. Uh, so that's keeping me busy because I'm not only producing about four hours of video content, but I'm also um, at the same time Involved in client projects through my consulting business and also leading new sales conversations. So I am planning to sleep a lot over Christmas, put it that way.
1: <laughs> you deserve it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I
1: don't know how you're getting it all done.
0: Let's talk about some of the sales development insights and some of the things that have come up in the last month. Just for everybody tuning in today, as always, we have on the agenda insights this month's mainly focused on the conference season and some of the conferences that have been happening that uh, Devon and I have been involved with. We'll be talking about the latest sales enablement jobs out there brought to you, as always, by Stephanie Sarabian. We have a few articles that Devon has researched that we'll break down and discuss. We'll have a book review again this month, so I'll be revisiting a book that I have read previously called Games People Play, which is a very interesting book from a psychology point of view. I think a lot of enables will find this useful, especially from a stakeholder management point of view. And then uh, we'll also talk about the latest social buzz in the sales enablement sphere, some of the discussions that have been happening on social media, and we will be breaking down those as well. So without further ado, let's talk about the conferences that have been happening. So... Conference season in full swing, I feel like there is not a week going by without any big conferences and enablers attending those. A couple of the conferences that have been happening that I have been involved in were the Trust Enablement Summit, which was the first time this event has been taking place. So kindly organized by John Moore. artist formerly known as the collaborator and um, also the sales enablement collective sales enablement summit which took place here in sydney also another great event so let's just kick things off with the trust enablement summit i think really adds great value to the conference landscape just simply because of the kind of format and the price point so what john moore had been doing with this conference was uh, he essentially organized a virtual event That combined a range of uh, different presentations from different kinds of enablers, from different seniorities and different organization sizes. I think that was the first angle that I really appreciated. So typically conferences really focus on the the big logos that are out there and the big brand names that attracts people. I think it is really interesting to hear from people working in smaller businesses because let's face it, they're not less capable than other enablers just because they don't have the big logo that people might be aware of so they also have great things to share and also the junior enablers out there that might be dealing with certain challenges they might not necessarily be able to share their decades of experience but they might be able to share the challenges that they're dealing with and how they have been able to overcome them in their specific situation which obviously also adds value to their peers I think overall a great format I have been personally struggling with the volume of content, to be honest. Yeah. Just simply because it's not an in person event. You essentially have the freedom to consume what you want to consume, which is a strength and a weakness at the same time. Yeah. I think there would be great value for me in actually having some sort of curation mechanism in the future um, for those kind of sessions that might most appeal to me. So basically doing the creation work for me, just simply because there has been the America stream of the conference. There has been the uh, Europe stream and also the Apex stream. And there was so much content. It's easy to feel overwhelmed when looking at all the content that's available at your fingertips. And if you are as busy as I am at the moment, it's really hard to actually pick out the nuggets. But I want to call up one session that I attended that I think was absolutely great. Damien Piggott, is an enabler from Oracle here in Australia. I had the pleasure of meeting Damien at a previous SDS networking event, a top blog. And what he spoke about in his presentation was mental health and well being for go to market teams. And some of the really interesting insights that he touched on was that salespeople, by the nature of their roles, are in a very tricky situation when it comes to their mental health. A lot of times, sellers are reduced to that one number, to that revenue target that they have to hit. And I've been struggling with it myself in previous sales roles. You hit your number, everything is great. Your manager high fives you, you're on top (laughs) of the world. And bottom line is you are a great person and you're doing a great job. You missed your numbers for whatever circumstances. It looks pretty bleak. The pressure starts ramping and you start questioning yourself and it's really easy, depending on your situation, also in your private life, to take those things really personal and you start questioning yourself. And what Damien called out in his talk was specifically that sort of dynamic. And he also compared the stats or the profile of a person that is likely to commit suicide with the profile of a typical B2B seller. And it is really interesting that those profiles pretty much match, right?
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: The average seller in the B2B space is a man in his 40s of a certain socioeconomic profile. And all those traits that he called out pretty much match the sort of statistics that are being released, especially considering the dynamic. It is worth looking at the mental health side of things in general as organizations. I think it's worth either way, right? But I think especially the sales side of things deserves attention on that front. Then on top of that he asked a question of what enablement can contribute, and he provided some pathways, including, for example, raising awareness within the organization with sales managers around mental health. Are mm-hmm. mental health first aid courses that can be done, which enablers can also access, obviously, which provides them with an opportunity to provide first aid, so to speak, from a mental health point of view, if there are any symptoms that they might encounter that deserve attention and that signal that there is a mental health struggle going on from their peers and let's face it enablers are exposed to so many roles and so many people operating in high pressure environments across the organization and we can probably look out for those symptoms as well and also provide first aid when it's needed wow so i thought that talk was simply brilliant anybody who has signed up for the trust and enablement summit and has access to those sessions i would highly recommend tuning into that one but yeah there were a couple of other sessions and Coincidentally, <laughs> those were run by Devin and myself.
1: Just so happened. <laughs> yeah.
0: What are the chances? So Devin, <laughs> I'm really curious to hear, you know, some of the key insights. So first of all, like run us through what your session was about and also some of the key insights that listeners might be able to take away who have not been able to attend your session live.
1: Yeah, so my session was with the lovely and talented Taylor Vincent from Handshake, and we talked about scoping an enablement function for a SaaS startup. So we covered all of the essential questions that enablers need to ask when they are joining a a new organization to make sure that that organization is in fact ready an enablement function. And also for people who uh, are running companies, it was also helpful for them to get a sense of, hey, where do I need to be to make sure I'm creating the right ecosystem for enablement to thrive? We also taught hiring and best practices for making sure you are thinking about the right hiring profile, how to think about scoping roles, setting up your enablement function for success with the right charter. So Taylor led an incredible section on just laying the foundation for a healthy enablement function. We talked about stakeholder management and really just all of the basics that need to be in place to make sure you're setting yourself and or your team up for success. It was such a fun session to lead. We had a a small but very interactive audience, so overall it was very fulfilling, but I so enjoyed preparing for it because it helped to expose some of the challenges that I've had in building out enablement at startups or in various organizations. And if I can do anything, it's helped to make sure that folks don't have to deal with some of those challenges that I have faced. So it was terrific. I highly recommend that folks give it a listen. Again, it's very foundational, but uh, helps to set the stage for, again, a healthy and productive enablement team.
0: Yeah, excellent. Yeah, you've done that a few times. You set up the enablement function from scratch. So, just for you. Yeah. 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 So, no need for people to make the same mistakes Devin has made. So, lots, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> lots to learn. Yeah. I've seen the presentation. So, I think there were lots of nuggets in there Yeah, for enablers that might be just entering the startup world for the first time to navigate that environment. So, thank you for that, Devin. I ran a session which was all about leveraging enablement's momentum. And some of the guidance that I want to provide with the session was around navigating the stakeholder environments as an enablers and how we can ensure relevance of our function in stakeholder environment and basically use the momentum that enablement has on a macro level. And the bust that is currently happening around enablement as a launchpad for people to really maximize the opportunity for their work, you know, so to do great work within the organizations and get the exposure that they deserve, but also to make their life easier and really create a career and an environment working environment for themselves that allows them to operate in a high performance environment on a sustainable level, right. And I essentially, as part of the session shared my journey in a previous enablement role, where I transitioned from being highly directive and from despite the remit of the role and despite my subject matter expertise i wasn't really able to create that impact and it wasn't in, in an enterprise environment and i essentially shared how i navigated that dynamic and used a deliberate approach to stakeholder management to creating a greater impact and i guess a couple of the key messages that i wanted attendees to walk away with was that there are essentially two games going on if you are in an enablement role right there's the the technical skill meaning the all the knowledge that you gain over time by reading books by taking courses by speaking to other enablers about the actual technical skill that you need to effectively increase self-effectiveness but then there's the second game which runs in parallel which is the stakeholder management right because as we all know sales enablement can do anything but we can't do everything which means that <laughs> exactly without the involvement of all the different stakeholders and without us being able to leverage those stakeholders we won't be able to achieve much and you know that comes down to the fact that enablers don't hold any formal power but at the same time need to align everybody across the organization to get projects done and to really create an impact and one of the tools that I have been using and that I use these days for those sort of complex stakeholder environments that I can also recommend, like in addition to other strategic tools that are out there, is the force the analysis, which really looks at where you are right now in your sales enablement role and where you would ideally like to be. And then essentially look at all the different factors and the stakeholders that are involved and the driving forces, so essentially what contributes or what accelerates the positive relationship across the organization and the collaboration with that particular stakeholder or stakeholder group, and then the restraining forces that look at what currently stops you from effectively dealing with those people? What can you really change to accelerate those driving forces and to limit or to eliminate the restraining forces? And a deliberate approach to strategic planning from a stakeholder management point of view can make your life so much easier, you know, and especially if you manage to eliminate those restraining forces, I think enablers can do so much better work and have such an easier life in their job that it's really worth actually considering that as an approach. And I talked about that approach to a few people at the Sales Enablement Summit, the SEC Sales Enablement Summit as well. And some of the enablers, especially the senior ones, agreed. They were joking, you know, like they don't run a key account plan because of the stakeholder environments, <laughs> But uh, I think what they did agree with was that they considered the stakeholder management to be something that they absolutely prioritize and that they actively pursue as an initiative across the organization so similar to what you said about your session in my session we had a small but really engaged audience yeah uh, which i personally really enjoyed you know so it was great it was more of a conversation and back and forth and really a, an opportunity to interact with people and to really provide targeted advice i think that's at this stage one of the charms of the conference is that you really have those sort of workshop environments and that opportunity to interact. But I really do hope for John and that conference that there will be even greater attendance numbers down the track. I think it adds to the conference landscape from our point of view, especially at that price point. He only charged $50 for all of that content that we just mentioned and more. I think this is pretty much unbeatable and is a really great value add for a lot of enablers out there. What are your thoughts? Anything else to add in terms of what you liked about this conference or what do you think can be improved on the track?
1: Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more. I absolutely loved this approach and John really tried to imagine a better way to leverage enablement talent. And you called out something that I think is worth calling out again because it's so rare in these conferences and panels is the varying levels so we had enablement newbies. There was a session with enablement specialists to the best in the business. And John also really focused heavily on de which I think isn't obviously not. I think it's incredibly important. And so it was exciting for me to see all of these new voices, new faces, new names, sharing insights on these panels and working sessions and engaging in a conversation around enablement. To your point, there was so much content. Like I have a list of all the the sessions that I need to watch. I'm still listening to all of the playbacks because I, I want to hear what the newer folks are doing and saying and advice that they have for folks like me that tend to get stuck in my ways. I thought another interesting element was that this conference was really focused on learning together. So there were definitely, you know, my session was PowerPoint led, but it wasn't just someone standing in front of the room running through a PowerPoint. It was folks that were sharing their experiences, creating an environment that supported vulnerability in the profession. And I feel like so often in conferences, it's like perfect state, beautiful picture, which is amazing. But I love hearing about challenges and hearing about different experiences. So the other thing that I thought was a standout, as you already mentioned, but again, worth, what do they say, double clicking into, is the price inclusivity. And I think this may be a quarterly event, so and I hope it is, just to create some momentum there. But the price was $50 included, access to all the sessions, access to playbacks, which is my favorite thing ever. And so many conferences are prohibitively expensive. And especially now, companies are not paying for conferences, at least not the companies that I've seen. So you're paying for those out of pocket, most likely. But to your point as well, this was the first trust enablement summit. I think... We're still kind of finding our, our legs, finding our footing there. An amazing start right out of the gate. But I think one other thing that I noticed was the uh, saleshood multiplier conferences was the same day. So I noticed that and I'm like, oh, we have a little conference competition. So little things like that, scheduling and so on. But I can't wait to keep working through the playbacks. The next one I have on deck is starting enablement when the rocket ship is already flying by Lawrence Wayne. So that is in my queue to watch this week, but So much to learn. And and to your point as well, I can't wait to see where this goes. I think it's such a unique approach. So inclusive, so different than anything I've experienced.
0: Couldn't agree more. Next one I just saw, literally just saw now, is in January, January 24th, 25th, and 26th. So yeah, anybody keen to get involved, check it out. It's trustenablement.com slash summit. Yeah, contrast. Program was another event that I attended, which was the Sales Enablement Summit in Sydney. Yeah, really interesting, like a very different approach, very different sort of event. So it was in person, very different to Trust Enablement in the sense that you mainly had those big logos speaking and people from bigger companies speaking on stage. I think it was an awesome event. I had a lot of fun there. The main benefit from my point of view was the networking side of things so i have been able to connect with so many enablers that i have only met online previously obviously because of the pandemic mainly a few people that i had on the podcast including james fielding formerly in the professional services space we had a great interview he was one of my first guests we had isaac carroll there formerly HubSpot, uh, was also a speaker there. So many great people that I have been able to connect with, that I previously only known online, but also new enablers that I have been able to meet. And I think there was a range of sessions, you know, like they varied in terms of value to me. Mm. I think the most valuable sessions that that I attended really offered practical advice, first of all, and really shared that experience, you know, like in form of case studies, or in the form of research that had been conducted and then applied within the organization. And then the second category was really talking about enablement on a meta level and kind of covering the bigger picture. I think the least valuable lessons were talking about topics that have been discussed a lot of times before. (laughs) Uh Ah, Yeah, I think, like, not necessarily in a conference environment, but you have your, I don't want to call out any specific sessions because I think, There are always nuggets in there, but just generally speaking, at that sort of high level of value that I've experienced in general across the conference, I think the least valuable sessions were kind of talking about topics that have been covered a lot in the past and also the sort of more unstructured conversations you know i think the best content is always done by people that have been deeply thinking about the topic mm-hmm. have put a lot of thoughts into preparing the presentations and so on i think the more ad hoc format like the fireside chats for example and also some of the panels you can just tell that there hasn't been as much preparation and therefore the insights don't come as hard and fast as they would with the presentation so From a format point of view, that was kind of like my thing. Again, like even with fireside chats that are a bit more informal and I think the panel discussions, there's still insight in there, but they're not as significant as those other ones, I would say. Networking was one of the key benefits, I think, from my point of view. I connected with so many people and it's great to not only have that virtual community, which is obviously at our fingertips, literally at any time of the day, you know, like through the access of the different communities that are out there through slack and uh, different forums but actually meeting and connecting with people in person and actually getting to know them a bit better in those online communities you tend to only talk about the profession and only talk about enablement challenges whereas if you catch up in person you get to know the person behind the sales enablement professional a bit better and uh, you kind of understand them a bit better where they're coming from like what they're dealing with and so on so i think that was absolutely brilliant one thing that really struck me and Don't get me wrong. I appreciate any vendors being involved in conferences and making them happen and actually contributing to the landscape by actually sponsoring um, those sort of events by providing monetary funds to the organizers. (laughs) But I think vendors can also add more value and probably also extract more value out of conferences if they are more focused on the content side of things, I would say. Yeah. So I found... From my observation, the vendor integration is a bit awkward. So you kind of could see the the energy in the room shift whenever the, <laughs> the vendor right. was on stage. And especially when there was kind of like an awkward attempt to pitch, I think people were kind of like a bit rolling their eyes yeah But obviously but you could sense it in the energy levels in the room that it was kind of people going or oh, thinking oh yeah here we go again at least that's what i thought and <laughs> i find it really surprising that vendors still haven't figured it out on how to do this a bit more subtle it's funny like in any industry you always have your darling vendors that everybody likes and people treat more like peers just simply because they love their solution so much there was a vendor when I was previously operating in the media space called Altbrain, which is a content recommendation engine that you would typically see at the bottom of news articles, you know, they recommend content. Their solution was loved by everybody in the industry and whenever they presented at conferences, you know, people really didn't care about them pitching or not because they knew their solution anyway. They just loved hearing right. from those people involved because they loved the vendor so much. And I think one of the vendors that we are dealing with in the sales enablement space that everybody just loves to see and last hearing about is Gong at the moment. You know, I think yes. Gong gets so much airtime; it's ridiculous, just the amount of mentions that they have during the presentations. People then obviously also, you know, qualify and say, oh yeah, you know, there's other solutions like Chorus, for example, out there.
1: But they're not using it. Yeah, no. yeah
0: but, but at the end of the day, I think Gong is one of those vendors. And I think those vendors that are considered darlings, because they know they get so much airtime, they then don't feel the need to pitch anymore. Exactly. It might be counterintuitive, but the vendors that don't get as much airtime, if they would actually act in that way, they would actually get more exposure and actually start more valuable conversations. I just want to call out a few uh, recommendations for vendors that might be listening and also keen to hear your thoughts, Devin. Yes. On the sort sort of format. So what I personally would be interested in as a buyer would be Vendor talk about the state of the solution category. So um, really have a a high-level overview of the solution category and the different nuances and what sort of solutions are out there that should be worth considering, like obviously including themselves as well. But really providing an objective view on the solution category as a whole. I think there would be value in teaching attendees the nuances of the solution category and who benefits most. So essentially calling out... What sort of businesses get the greatest results out of purchasing solutions in that solution category and who doesn't? I think that would be instantly more valuable than tone-deaf pitches. I think from a workshop point of view, I think vendors could run awesome workshops on how to match the adoption of a solution category in organizations, you know? So oh. essentially the customer success angle if you purchase a solution in that category, what are the pitfalls typically from an adoption point of view and what are some of the tips for you to consider to make it a success? I think from a self perspective, like vendors selling, I think that reduces the perceived risk of people introducing that solution, you know. And I think if you see a vendor being a trusted advisor and actually making the decision a success, I think that instantly skews the attitudes towards those vendors. Another one could be workshops on how some of the things that they solve for can be done manually first which is a way to enable enablers with a limited budget first of all but it's also an opportunity to showcase how much work is actually involved in doing things manually compared to them automating it there could be another format that i think could add value what are your thoughts seven do you have anything to add have you come across any sponsorships that have been actually be really engaging and effective from your point of view
1: Yeah. Well, I always have thoughts, as you know, Felix. But a quick note on Gong, the thought leadership that Gong delivers via surveys, reports, insights from their platform are next level. Like They could present on literally any topic that they've delivered a blog or an article on, and I would be a very attentive audience member. So that alone, I think, gives them the credibility to walk into a conference and not have to like sell their solution. We all know we need it. Now tell me how to be better at doing my job as an enabler via all of these amazing insights. So that's just one note because I too always talk about Gong on my sessions. I need to stop. But I think you nailed it. Some of the best vendor sessions I've attended have been more valuable in some cases than peer led because if they're running a true value sale, right? So if they're here to sell me something, they shouldn't be talking about their tech. They should be talking about problem sets. Enablers, you have this problem. What are your value drivers? What are your economic drivers? What can I do to make your life easier? Not about my product. Let's talk through general solutions. And I think you mentioned that of like, how do you just do the thing? What are some best practices? How do you address these various problems? Hey, you can do it with our tech. But I'm giving you all of these amazing insights. Take them, do with them what you will, but you will remember us because I helped you with something. I gave you something. I wasn't asking for anything in return. And most of the vendors that I've seen do that. I go to their website. I follow their thought leadership. I keep them on my radar because I've been given insight information that's about me. So obviously you're presenting to a broad audience, but essentially you know you have enablers in C. You know what their problem set is. You know how your tech can solve it. It's a value-based sale. And if they do it right, it can be really compelling. Another vendor that I talk about way too much, considering that I don't use them in my current role, is MindTickle. I think they do a great job of delivering insights, best practices, without saying, and by the way, you can do it in our platform or try to sell you on it. I actually was at a MindTickle conference, and they did an entire presentation on the ideal rep profile. And the way that they positioned it and and insights they gave, it wasn't about me purchasing it. It, I mean, it was ultimately, but it it didn't feel that way. It felt very much like I got so much from that very brief presentation that I actually talk about it. I have folks on my team read their thought leadership on it. And yes, they want me to use their platform, but it's done right because they're giving me insights, best practices, tips that are making me better at what I do. It's making me think in a different way. It's smart. It's good sales, right? So Those are my tips for good vendor sessions, but when they come in and they're like features and functions, it's a no-go for me. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I think there's also that meta level of enablers knowing sales pretty well and knowing what good sales looks like. Exactly. So (laughs) I think it's something worth considering. Yeah, I think an enablement audience should be sold to well, considering that they're specialists in that space. So lots of room for improvement there. And I'm curious to hear from the audience as well, if you have come across any really valuable vendor sessions and what really made them so valuable to you. I think we all agree, you know, people love tech and tools. Everybody loves that insights about new shiny toys. And people are ready to buy. People are interested in learning. So I think it's a missed opportunity for a lot of vendors out there, without mentioning any specific names. Now, in terms of some of the other insights that I personally have walked away with, I just want to call a few out here. I think something that I came across or that has been mentioned a couple of times in people that I spoke to was that enablers and large organizations really tend to crave greater influence. So if you talk about like big corporates and big enterprises, and then you have enablers that work in startups and they have much greater influence, you know, like and they talk more about the strategic level, getting that senior executive buy-in, developing the charter and so on, and some enablers that are more specialized in organizations especially those looking after training exclusively, I think they're struggling with actually gaining that greater influence and extending their remit beyond what they're doing right now. So I did hear from a few enablers that that is a challenge. So my advice is always to try and educate the business as much as possible around the opportunities and then basically create that alignment to get more buy-in and then gradually extend your remit. I do know it's a challenge with high degrees of specialization in large corporates. There's only so much you can do. But yeah, that came up a few times. Apparently, there's fewer enablement roles in APEC right now. I think that comes down to the recession and the fact that even American companies that might not necessarily have laid off their local staff, they might be dialing back their activity overseas just simply because they focus domestically. I think this is something that seems to be more apparent here in the APEC region, I saw more and more new industries pushing into enablement, and a lot of enablers in first time roles from industries that you would typically not see in the enablement space pushing into enablement. So, for example, professional services, banking, so those sort of industries start investing more and more. I think, you know, especially in the APEC region, if you take America as the most virtual market. Or if you take Metropolitan America as a more mature market, especially in the South Space, and if you then apply that to Australia, I think the fact that more niche industries are starting to invest in enablement is really a reflection of the acceleration of the space and also the increased maturity levels. So that was really great to see a lot of remote enablers. So there were, for some reason, there were a bunch of enablers from Brisbane that uh, work in national roles. So. Brisbane is the third biggest Australian city. right? So it's Sydney, Melbourne, and then Brisbane. And yeah, a few enablers made the move during the pandemic up north, living in the sunshine and just operating remotely. So that's great to see. Devin, I know you're operating remotely as well, just like me. So we can both relate to that. And we'll talk about South name and jobs later on as well, some of the jobs that are out there. But I think this is definitely a trend that we can see and certainly prove that... Sales enablement roles can be done remotely. Are you fully remote or do you sometimes fly in and actually visit people in person? Like how's your role structured right now?
1: Yeah, I'm fully remote and I'm in a pretty like a remote place in general, but almost my entire enablement team is remote because I think the idea of having to like be on the floor to listen to what reps are doing is changing. Yeah. Things like call recording, things like that make that you know non-essential. Now of course, as you mentioned, being in person, there's it's such a valuable experience. So I am actually going to my New York office for the first time next week. But I think it's incredible. There's so much talent in so many places across the globe. And when we hire only in New York or only in San Francisco, we miss out on so much. So I personally am thrilled about this trend. And I'm so excited to support a team of almost fully remote enablers.
0: Yeah, awesome. Awesome. We uh, have a comment from Gail, she has posted a link to an article, I think, that she wrote about selling to enablers. Thanks for sharing, Gail. This is awesome. A couple of the other insights that I also want to call out is the challenges around awareness for the need of a localized enablement approach. I think probably not so much a topic in the U.S. market. You know, like there's not as much nuance as across the APEC region, maybe across Americas. Are there nuances between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, would you say?
1: I'd say, yes, across those three, like there's definitely subtle differences. But when I supported teams in Australia and in the UK, the blanket approach that I was trying to take as a team of one was not well received. So you are, this is spot on. You have to treat each country, each team that you're enabling in a unique way based on the customers that they're dealing with and the experiences that they're having. So I learned that one the hard way, thankfully, pretty early on, but it's super important.
0: Excellent. Excellent. This insight came from a few people in the group that I spoke to, but also a Tim from IBM. I can't think of his last name now, but his keynote was brilliant. So he was speaking about creating, engaging training experiences remotely, and he deals across the entire APEC region, including India, all the different countries in Southeast Asia, so Singapore, Malaysia, and so on. And he was talking about the cultural nuances and some of the things to consider. Yeah, I think definitely something that's top of mind, especially for enablers operating internationally, something to consider and to incorporate. Also, maybe not not necessarily, you know, like in terms of the training content, like if you're running training, or if you're introducing any sales enablement initiatives, but at the very least in the way you interact with your stakeholders, I think those sort of interactions are worth considering. I think the other insight that I found really useful was that a VP of Enablement was talking about from a cybersecurity company was talking about how he aligned the compensation structure to incentivize alignment with corporate strategic pillars. So essentially, speaking of the tie-in between SaaS Enablement Strategy and the corporate strategy and really making sure that the business value is created... His way as a VP of enablement to actually achieve that at scale with all his direct reports is to provide incentives from a compensation point of view to actually have enablers create initiatives that really address those different KPIs and those different strategic corporate goals. So I think that was really interesting because when we talk about compensation structure from an enablement point of view, or at least the conversations that I'm exposed to, we often focus on ourselves reps and what sort of incentives we provide to them to incentivize the right behaviors but i think also from a sales enablement leadership point of view if you have numerous direct reports that's probably also something worth considering to make sure the strategic value to the business is given in any sales enablement initiative sales culture was another topic that was being talked about or was a presentation by a gentleman from aws and he was talking about their sales culture transformation journey and a dynamic which we'll also talk about later on in a book review but he was talking about numerous things that impact their sales culture but especially above the line and below the line thinking right and what they mean by that is above the line thinking is essentially the proactive empowered way of thinking that really is results oriented and really aims to make a difference and to address the problems that are really at hand versus the below the line thinking, which is the passive approach that complains about all the factors in the environment that are not may not be perfect and throwing up your hands and saying, oh, this is all so awful and so on. And at AWS, they took it so literal and we hear about those sort of cultural quirks from Amazon and AWS on a regular basis. You see those sort of posts all the time, but what they did to essentially incentivize above the lines thinking was they literally had a bit of tape at eye level in the meeting rooms and all the meeting rooms placed, and to visualize the above and below the line <laughs> sort of thinking. And they also had a in each meeting they have a nominated coach, which then recaps at the end of the meeting and provides suggestions to incentivize above-the-line thinking. So um, I thought that was really interesting.
1: Huh. That's really cool.
0: Yeah. I think from your point of view, I should have mentioned that earlier as well, but there was a concept mentioned which is called Workshop in a Box. Ooh. I think this one was really interesting because it was from a solo practitioner here in the APAC region who is has attempted to scale his impact across the organization. And because he realized that he cannot run all the workshops and he cannot attend all the team meetings, he created that concept of workshop in a box, which is essentially a package provided to the sales managers that equips them with PowerPoint slides, with exercises, and with guidance around how to run a workshop to their sales teams. I love it. This is essentially like the attempt to scale the impact of a solo practitioner. But I do think even in more well-resourced enablement teams, this could be a way to empower sales managers and to have them. Be more part of the efforts and also to create that buy in and give them more ownership of the enablement efforts.
1: That's incredible.
0: Is it a concept that you have previously encountered or heard about?
1: Not at, to that level of depth. I am so impressed by this. I actually grabbed a note in my notebook because we're we're working on something now called the Enablement Standardization Initiative, which is similar to this, but it's more around like the build and deployment of toolkits, coaching, all that good stuff. But this is next level. So I want to talk to the person that did this because I am borrowing this idea. Um, <laughs> we do something similar with our like e-learning development. It's a basically a toolkit empowering folks to build the right type of training, record it appropriately. But... I'm a fan, yeah, this is great. Yeah. I'm not doing anything like this, but I will be soon.
0: Excellent, excellent. That was it for my recap of the conferences. You know, As I said, I think the virtual conferences have a place and I think John Moore's Trust Enablement Summit is probably that end of the spectrum of like really high value virtual conferences. I think that hopefully it will further evolve and provide even greater value to audiences I personally would be ready. I don't want to mess it up for everybody else, but I would be ready to pay a bit more than $50. I know. I think, John, you can uh, back yourself there. (laughs) But I think at the same time, it's really important to provide that ongoing value and to evolve the format to make it as good as it can be. I think he did a great start with that particular conference and um, I hope it will keep on going. Same here. Just changing uh, pace here, I just quickly want to call out the latest 1,800 jobs that are out there. So Stephanie Zorabian, as always, does a great job in curating those. So for anybody who has not come across her posts, please make sure to check them out. She just released the latest one yesterday. A bunch of great jobs, lots of remote roles. So this is really good to see a whole heap of jobs out there, especially in the American markets hybrid roles there as well. We have a couple of international roles as well. There's a training manager in Tel Aviv, Israel. And we also had one from Reich, a director of sales and aidment, which can also be placed in Prague or Dublin. So a few international roles, uh, lots of American roles. So for anybody interested in seeing what is out there, please make sure to check out Stephanie Zorabian's post on the latest roles that are out there. Okay, so Devin, you've researched a few articles that you've come across. Tell us about what they are all about. We've got the first one here, which is the Sales Enablement Analytics 2022. What was that one all about?
1: Yes. So this is really a call to action for a future report from Sales Enablement Pro. So this one is on Sales Enablement Analytics, one of my favorite topics, since as you and I both know, Felix, metrics and insights are the lifeblood of enablement success, but another topic that generally proves hard to create standard best practices for. As we know, businesses are different, metrics are different, we're tracking them in different ways, but this survey has some questions that address metrics across categories like sales performance, proficiency, and productivity. The survey covers everything from business metrics tracked to onboarding and readiness, ongoing training or everboarding success, effectiveness of coaching, sales efficiency, and so much more. I personally am always looking to improve my approach to metrics and success tracking. So I loved even just taking this survey just to see the types of inputs that Sales Enablement Pro is looking for. So for all of my enablement friends out there, take this survey. Felix and I cannot wait to present the results of this survey in a future this month in Sales Enablement Session. The one thing that I don't know is when the survey closes. I didn't notice it in the overview, but we will definitely share this link in our newsletter. If you missed the survey submission, not to worry again, we will be covering the insights that are shared.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I think uh, always hot topic. I think metrics was also something that a lot of people spoke about at the conferences. Yeah, definitely keen to see those results. The next article that we have is from Martech Cube MTC. What is that one all about?
1: Yeah, so the next two articles, I'm going to call them like best friend articles because they're very similar. So we'll start with this one, which states that companies are neglecting customer success enablement. So a couple of weeks ago, late October, Mediafly and RevOps Squared shared findings that showed that 58% of organizations have a sales enablement practice, while only 21% include customer success enablement. But another common theme that we all know is that customer retention and growth is harder to achieve and more important than ever. So this results in, in what I think is a glaring opportunity to dig into the customer journey and build strategic enablement for all revenue teams to create an alignment and consistency in every customer interaction. And it's really all about ensuring that we're making the most of every single milestone and customer touch point and focusing on building A more strategic enablement function that can align to and impact the bottom line in a more consistent way. And one other note, I feel like at this point in my enablement and and revenue enablement career, I can't imagine just building a sales enablement function ever again. I think about those essential SaaS metrics like CAC to LTV and the costs that are associated with bringing on a customer. So Selling is really, really important and and building that relationship, but getting the growth and retention milestones locked and solid is so vital to an organization's sustained success. So findings in the article were fairly interesting here. And I didn't mention this before, but all of the findings that are included are part of the 2022 Future of Revenue Enablement Study, which surveyed about 300 B2B companies designed to reveal best practices in sales enablement. So the high level overview or the TLDR is enablement needs to be funded to support the right programs, staff the right team, procure the right tools to scale, to track and coach our teams. And they call out that only 19% of the 58% of companies that have sales enablement actually support those programs with technology. And they call out again that nearly 48% of sales reps are not hitting quota. And that this stat is the result of a number of things, including lack of data-driven enablement, which we talk so much about, poor talent intelligence and management, and poorly executed training. I call those three like the usual suspects, so not super surprised there, and obviously strategic enablement can impact that. But finally, they call out that the most innovative companies are transitioning to revenue enablement from sales enablement, and that those new revenue enablement teams are more likely than not to report to the CRO. And this is another common topic for us, Felix. We always talk about reporting structure, and the CRO seems to be the hot spot for that one. So some tips based on these findings from the article are that we should be focusing on full-scale revenue enablement over traditional sales enablement, prioritizing coaching, deploying execution-focused technology, and measuring and optimizing a revenue enablement program. So this article is a little bit misleading because we didn't actually talk about CS enablement. So. If there's anyone here that wants to learn more about CS enablement, there are amazing resources in all of the enablement groups that Felix was mentioning earlier. And there's a great session that was delivered during the Trust Enablement Summit called What is Customer Success Enablement? So this was a panel session and it featured a number of CS enablement pros. And they talked about the benefit and best practices for building an amazing customer success enablement function that's driven by customer obsession. They talked about metrics to track and how to track them. They also talked about Gong, but basically they focus on the importance of technology and, and driving the right behavior. So article title is a little bit misleading, but some interesting stats there. If you're looking to expand your enablement function to cover the full customer journey. As I mentioned, this article is a nice segue into our next article. So this article is called Sales Enablement versus Revenue Enablement. And we have an opening statement that says... Sales enablement is undergoing a transformation in the sales world. Its future is being debated. Its foundations are being questioned. And it's all because of revenue enablement. A more holistic approach that isn't just for salespeople. It's for everyone involved in a customer-facing role. But is revenue enablement better than sales enablement? And is sales enablement still a good investment? Now, for you, me, and our enablement friends, this might not be a profound or groundbreaking topic. I know we we talk about revenue enablement quite a bit, but revenue enablement is still becoming more widely accepted as the way enablement should be, if you will. And I think it's always helpful to have new points of view and resources to validate this move to that holistic approach to enablement. And again, as we've spoken about at length, these days, it is all about revenue enablement. Sales enablement is no longer the sole focused Especially for companies that are really leaning into customer centricity and building customers for life. And that seems to be the trend that I'm hearing. You know, we're not just talking about sales process, we're talking about customer journey, we're talking about retention, we're talking about experience. It truly is a shift in how organizations across the board are thinking about selling across the journey. So the article takes the stance that. The adoption of sales enablement across businesses is fizzling out or stalling because the current best practices and frameworks are not working. They also say that some of those frameworks are too complex to actually deploy. And your favorite topic, Felix, lack of stakeholder buy-in. So. Part of the problem is that sales enablement still isn't universally seen as a strategic function. And as we saw, the themes of so many of the conferences were geared towards establishing enablement as a strategic partner, stakeholder management, metrics. And so I do want to to say, and hopefully everybody reads this article as well, but they're not saying that sales enablement isn't valuable or isn't a meaningful solution for companies, but rather that in many cases, companies that have sales enablement might not be doing it well, or that it's incomplete, not data-backed, not clearly defined processes, and and so on. But according to the article, that's where revenue enablement can really shine because it actually addresses customer-facing teams across the business, again, allows for customer centricity, real customer centricity, creating a consistent and thoughtful customer experience from that very first marketing engagement or touch on your website to Sales call, kickoff, onboarding, adoption, cross-sell, renewal, all of those moments that are so important. And sales enablement only takes us so far, as we know. And Felix, you know that I'm obsessed with how everybody defines sales and revenue enablement. So the article says that where sales enablement is designed to bring sales and marketing together to create efficiencies and drive results, revenue enablement is all about the customer and ensuring the customer is at the heart of every decision and motion, driving results through customer satisfaction. And... It's really about sharing the goodness of what we're doing for sales to all of the other essential teams in our organization who work with our customers. And I've personally seen so many companies address motions or strategies or processes at cherry picked points in the customer journey without understanding the essential steps before or after that moment And it's a nightmare, but when you have enablement that spans your organization and your customer-facing teams in seat as a strategic partner, they can help to inform the organization to make better decisions. So the bottom line is this more inclusive approach to organizational enablement allows us to work together to build a customer success machine and a business and business practices that are truly focused on our customers. So Felix you and I have covered a lot of reports and now even more articles on this push to revenue enablement. So what are your thoughts on the role and purpose or or future of revenue enablement? Do you think that's where it's at? Or do you think we still need to do more work and write more articles to sell the concept of revenue enablement to organizations?
0: I think it comes down to the business challenge that you're attempting to solve, right? That pretty much defines the approach that you need to follow. You know, as soon as you're really clear about the challenge you're trying to solve, you are then able to specify what you're going to do, and whether it's sales enablement, uh, whether it's revenue enablement, doesn't really matter as long as you solve for that challenge. I think longer term, any business embarking on that journey and optimizing all parts of their business bit by bit, I think will arrive once they reach certain maturity levels, they will reach the revenue enablement approach. I think what I see though for a lot of organizations is that they need to do the few things really well first before they do other things, right? Mm -hmm. Now, those things might include customer success and they might include that part of the customer journey. I think it's just important to prioritize those really big gaps that you have across the organization in your customer experience and in in your revenue effectiveness. Like once you address those challenges, you will know which approach is right for your business right now. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I think the bottom line for me is it's not an either or. It's more the question of what you're trying to solve for and where you are in your maturity journey and how much you're ready to spend. Because speaking to the solar practitioners at the conferences, it really became clear to me that even those people are stretched solely focusing on sales. Oh, yeah. Now, if you would tell them that they're now responsible for revenue enablement, I think their heads would explode. So (laughs) I think it also comes down to resourcing and what you're able to tackle. But I do think sales enablement is a long hanging fruit, but I think it also comes down to the strategic nature of your approach. If you are solving for business problems, it shouldn't matter where it occurs across the customer lifecycle, you should be able to address that as an enabler so i think it's probably something that people can set for their personal development goals and expanding their horizon as much as possible so that that they are able to address those various challenges but i i do think there is still a shortfall of focus and a shortfall of effectiveness in a lot of enablement teams that needs to be addressed first before we expand that remit
1: i hear you they need more workshops in a box
0: That's right.
1: I love this. I'm obsessed with this. Okay, yes.
0: (laughs) That's right. Well, Christmas is coming up, so there will be a lot of boxes handed out there.
1: (laughs) Exactly.
0: Okay, we've got a book review as well this month. So I have revisited a book that I have read a while ago, which is The Games People Play. The Games People Play is a book by... Eric Byrne. And it's one of those books that are not particularly about sales or particularly about enablement. But I do think it contains a lot of valuable information that is relevant to enablers. And the games people play describes the psychology of human relationships and the sort of dynamics that take place in transactions, as he calls it, between people. Right. And the main call out here is that people play games not necessarily to be productive or to be constructive in the way they interact, but they mainly play games to fulfill their personal psychological needs, right? And in a transaction between people and in a game that people play, you typically have different roles and alter egos that people slip into. And he describes those as threefold. So number one is the child, right? So the helpless person that craves attention that needs to be supported is number one the second one is the parent right so the the parents essentially taking care of the child being somewhat controlling in a way and covering. so always paying attention to the child and taking charge of the relationship as a whole and then the third one which is the state that. Is most constructive and that people should generally aim for in their relationships is the role of the adult right so Mm -hmm. the adult (laughs) is independent considers other people to be independent and is focused on the challenge or the subject matter at hand without considering those sort of dynamics or those sort of psychological needs that might be at hand he breaks down a range of them in his book so he breaks down the different kinds of games that he comes across in human interactions. One of it is, why don't you, yes, but? So he's got these funny descriptions of games. Uh Why don't you, yes, but? So one person says, why don't you, X? And the other person says, yes, but this is the interaction where you have an adult or a parent on one side that asks, uh, why don't you do such and such? And then the yes, but which is the child's role that somebody plays, which is essentially the person trying to find an excuse not to do something, right? And blaming external factors on not doing something. And that, again, I think that really hit home for me based on the insight around above the line and below the line thinking that I mentioned earlier. So it's that rather than taking charge of a situation and being proactive and analytical about it. It's the irrational blaming of external factors and not doing something. And there are, of course, like certain psychological needs that play into that, which is mainly the need for safety and the avoidance of a failure. Like you don't even attempt something because you don't want to fail and so on. The other one is the wooden leg, which is picking a limitation that we have and using it as an excuse for bad behavior, pure results or lack of motivation. Again, this is, it comes down to the motivation or the responsibility that we take or don't take. And yeah, this is something that like, I come across in sales organizations as well with sellers blaming, oh, we don't have such and such tool. Yeah. Like, of course, I can't sell effectively. Those sort of things. This is something that we also come across. The other one that we also have is called, now I got you, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Which is.
1: <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> that's
0: right. That's right. Which is essentially the behavior that they exhibit when people try to call other people out and use it an ex- as an excuse to blow up and mm-hmm. essentially looking for a scapegoat and a reason to blow off steam, right? So people that are under a lot of pressure, and I've come across those sort of leaders, especially when I was in sales roles, really tend to exhibit those sort of behaviors when they call people out for not doing the right thing. Than blowing up at them for whatever reason that might be, you know, but those are the dynamics. So I don't want to go through all of those games now, but I think the bottom line or the key insight from that book for me is that people do play games to meet their psychological needs and they are hardly ever constructive, right? So if we are focused on outcomes we do not need to play games and we do not meet our personal psychological needs, right? But I think just based on that insight, there's two things that we can do. Number one is we can try and identify games being played and counteract them in our professional environment. So basically try to bring it back to the task at hand and try to counteract those sort of dynamics that might be taking place that are counterproductive. But we can also look at uh, our own behavior and see whether there are repetitive sort of behavioral patterns that we can exhibit in ourselves and ask ourselves what sort of psychological needs are we trying to meet for ourselves? And are we our own worst enemy by exhibiting those behaviors? You know? And I think it comes down to personal development, of course, but it can be something that helps us in our private life, but also in our roles as enablers to really see whether we solve for the task at hand or whether we, we play games out there. Have you encountered people in your professional life that are playing games?
1: <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. So I will be purchasing this book so that I can diagnose what's going on. But yes. And hearing it, you're like, wow, I'm thinking about all the situations that I've been in. So it's unfortunate. But I think to your point, using it on yourself first to ensure that there's some self-awareness around like, am I, am I doing this to folks? And, and if I stop doing it or change what I'm doing, will it have a different result? And I think yes. So I'm excited for this.
0: I think the book has a lot of great insights and is really usable once you understand those different games that are being played and what you should be looking out for. But I do think at the same time, it's not directly like targeted at sales professionals. And it's not specifically talking about the sales environment, which makes an effort required to actually translate it into that sort of world. And then at the same time, because it's written by, I think the author is also a psychologist, Oh, he's a psychiatrist, even even worse. (laughs) So he gets quite technical and it can get quite dense at times. So I just want to prepare anybody who's interested in looking into that as well. So there is some work required to actually persevere and go through that book. So it's not an easy read, I would say. And therefore, because you have to do that translation work and it's not such an easy read, I would probably give it three out of five stars. Okay. I think there's still a lot of valuable insight, but you have to work a little to actually get there. And yeah, ease of consumption always a topic, especially in the South Named space. So,
1: big time. Or <laughs> the Cliffs notes, <laughs> the Spark notes, whatever.
0: Gonna... <laughs> that's right. That's right. But if you're really interested in psychology and that sort of space, it might be for you. But Otherwise, if you're struggling with information overload, it's probably not the right one for you.
1: Listen to this recap, and you won't hear all of the games, but you'll hear some of them. (laughs)
0: That's right. That's right. Now, just to finish off, a couple of things that are popping up on social media and social media buzz. Some people consider it their favorite part of the show. So let's take a look what we have here. What was the first one that you came across
1: Social media buzz is also my favorite part of the show. So this one is to send a thank you note or to not send a thank you note. And I think we all know to preface this, like interviewing can sometimes be a long and arduous process, meeting with too many people, delivering presentations that take forever to build. And on top of that, having to send a thoughtful thank you note to each person that you've met with. But do you? Do you have to send a thank you note? So this LinkedIn post from Stephanie Saunders, she asks the question, When did candidates stop sending thank you notes post-interview? We've been interviewing for several roles, and I've noticed that fewer and fewer people send any sort of meaningful follow-up after their conversations. Does it matter? Have you seen this as well? So I clicked this article because I was like, wanted to know. And I found myself multiple content threads deep with so many varying points of view. It got heated people were talking about the legality of this. And so this was a LinkedIn experience that, hey, I highly recommend that everyone spends time on this thread, but I literally had to put my computer down, get a glass of wine, make myself a bowl of popcorn, tuck in on the couch and dig in. I am not even kidding. I called my partner in the room. I was like, you got to hear this. So it was a wild ride, lots of twists and turns. And let me just say, I love seeing the different points of view from folks in different industries, roles, experience levels, demographics, everything. So Some folks say that thank you note best practices are dependent on a number of things. One being where you live. So a commenter talked about how sending thank you notes after a job isn't common at all in the UK. And someone responded saying, yeah, it kind of seems like you're bringing an apple for the teacher, it's a lot. And others say that depending on one's socioeconomic upbringing or culture, that thank you notes may not have been something they were ever taught to send or encouraged to send or even expected to do. And that it's really unfair to expect people to send thank yous without letting them know about your expectations in advance. Another issue that's flagged in the comments is hiring managers expecting candidates to send a thank you note as part of your unspoken hiring criteria and then disqualifying folks if they don't send the thank you. So the original commenter on this thread flagged that he was primarily hiring sales folks and shared his stance that thank yous are in fact an unwritten requirement for him but that he also responds personally to each thank you note he receives, which is terrific. Most hiring managers don't in my experience, but the argument there is that he's hiring mostly sales folks and that follow ups are really just an essential part of the role of a seller. And his expectation again, is that candidates should be treating this interview as though it were a deal. And he equated again, that motion of sending a thank you to interviewers with thanking the prospect in a deal. Others, Like enablement pro Ciel Tilney, who I actually spoke with on a panel many years back, she asked the question, why would a candidate send a thank you note when recruiters, especially in the US, don't even do them the courtesy of letting them know that they didn't get the job or that the role was filled, which is very common here. And I think that's a fair point, coupled with the erratic adventure that the interview process can be, where sometimes you're meeting with upwards of seven people and this gave me a little PTSD because my most intense interview experience was interviews with eight people in one office. And then I had to fly to HQ to meet with some of the same people who were also there, more people who I hadn't met yet, then do a presentation. And then they gave me a horrible offer that I was just like, how dare you? This was many years ago, so I've learned better interview practices on my end, but it was crazy. So sending emails to all of those people, right? If I was to email all of them, that's a lot of time spent on a formality that in addition to whatever time you're spending on presenting, prepping for the interview, it's a lot. So my personal point of view as a hiring manager, I don't expect a thank you note or even want them, but let me just say, I am very appreciative when candidates take the time to send them and I do try my best to respond, but it is not even remotely close to a make or break for me. And frankly, It's a heavy lift if I'm hiring for multiple roles and doing my job. And and so, again, I'm appreciative of the questions and thank yous that folks ask. But I I think when they do that during the interview, it's all that I personally require. So, Felix, what is your stance on the post-interview thank you note? A secondary question. What if you're interviewing with more than five people? What do you do?
0: (laughs) First of all, let me start off by saying that I'm not a big fan of those really extensive interview processes. I think if you are not able to figure it out quicker than that, you probably either don't know what you want or (laughs) you are not sure, which is probably not a good sign. So I I personally pulled out of an interview process after uh, seven interviews before because I said I I cannot, at that time I I was a full-time employee and I was interviewing at a at another business that actually had approached me. Yeah. So they (laughs) they had approached me and then it was just endless interviews and I just said, I can't do this anymore. That's the first one. I do think it's a sign of good taste and manners if you stand that. But I also do want to say that it is not common everywhere. So, for example, in Germany, it's not very common to write thank you notes in any sort of context. I think it's a bit more transactional there. I think it's a sign of good taste and manners and I do think... It is reasonable if you interact with a small group of people to actually send thank you notes, especially in the first interaction. I think it sets the tone for the relationship. It builds the relationship. It doesn't cost anything. It doesn't have to be long. So I think it doesn't hurt. As a hiring manager, I probably, unless it's themselves, I probably wouldn't consider it something that would tarnish the experience with a candidate. I wouldn't say, okay, I'm, I'm hiring this person over the other one because that one person sent me a thank you note. Right. <laughs> I wouldn't see somebody negatively because of it, but I do agree. It's probably that sort of interpersonal skill and the ability to effectively communicate remotely through content such as a thank you note is probably a sales skill that is a reflection of the ability to interact. So I think under those conditions, I think it's perfectly fine. I would never say don't send a thank you note. It doesn't hurt. I don't think it's inappropriate. I think you can probably do a bit too much if you have uh, various interviews and you keep on sending thank you notes, you know, like that and kind of
1: right. <laughs> gets a bit old,
0: it kind of wears off. But I do think, especially in the beginning of the interaction, it probably makes sense for me.
1: That's a great point.
0: Cool. So the next one that we have is from Paul Butterfield, an absolute sales legend. He was recently awarded a lifetime achievement award. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Incredible. Yeah, so congrats, Paul, again. He was also previously on the State of Southern Avon podcast, if anybody who's keen to listen. in. he had this post about bosses that we remember, and he said he had three leaders throughout his career that exemplified these behaviors, and those included provided us with a safe place to grow, opened career doors, defended us when we needed it, recognized and rewarded us, developed us as leaders, inspired us to stretch higher, forgave us when you make mistakes, told us our work mattered and led by example. So I think those are obviously things that we would love to see in any sort of leader that we interact with. But I just want to call out that I think all of those things are also considering the community that exists in the sales enablement space and the support of nature of enablers and the interactions of enablers around the world. I think these are all things that we can also do to support our peers, right? So you don't have to be a manager to actually do those things. And there's a lot of peer to p interaction where we can actually do those sort of things. You know, we can inspire other people to stretch hires. We can help people and open career doors. We can provide them with a safe place to grow by sharing vulnerability and really showing that it's okay not to know something and to help each other out and so on. So I just want to call that out. But I also want to ask you, Devin, Have you had any bosses in the past that really exemplified these behaviors? And if so, now's your chance to call them out and give them the credit they deserve.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, thankfully, yes. And unfortunately, they're few and far between. But I've had two incredible leaders or mentors, really, that have guided me and supported me and, and were just phenomenal. And I think the bad leaders can ruin everything. I feel like every new leader going through leadership training, I know... I've led a number of leadership trainings, I've been a part of them, and and you always get the question, share three traits of the worst leaders you've had and three traits of the best leader. And I think they wanna share like right away, don't be that person. And so this list is the gold standard and a leader who puts people first, celebrates them, supports them, coaches them, is everything. And even if you work at a company, and I've definitely had this experience with like the perfect company culture, values, vision, every like, oh my gosh, it's so perfect. If you have a bad manager, it ruins everything. It's your your team-specific culture that can be made or broken by someone who just doesn't understand things. Like, here's what's funny: I can give you more examples of bad bosses, the folks that like micromanaged you, they were MIA, put themselves first. It can summon a rain cloud and just destroy what could be an incredible experience. So I'd like to think about like building your team values is more important than. Your company values. I probably shouldn't say that, but I think it is. And again, I wish I had a list of twenty-five bosses to share with you. But the good ones are are the ones that just change everything. I mean, my entire enablement career has been guided by a few incredible managers. What about you?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, also, I also had great and terrible bosses. I think you come across very few people that naturally have those sort of abilities. And I do think that it is worth for companies to actually invest in leadership training and. The great bosses that I had across the board, they, they all had that sort of leadership training. And I was then lucky enough to at some stage also get that sort of training. And I think I mentioned it before, Anthony Sorg, also a leadership coach that I have worked with in a previous role that was also guest on my podcast previously, his leadership training that taught me how to be a good boss technically, not only like from a human angle, but also from a technical angle, yeah. How you coach effectively, how you identify what really matters to people and how do you nurture them, how do you create a safe space to grow and so on. Those lessons that he taught over a two day workshop about over ten years ago now, they still stick with me and I still think about those. So I think leadership training is underrated in a lot of companies. And you know, if we think as enablers, sales managers being the key multipliers for us across the business, I think they are multipliers for culture as well. I think having a great leadership culture really sets organizations up for success or can set them up for failure. And I do think there should be a lot of investment in that space. And any enablers out there, I think if you have the opportunity to participate in leadership training and to understand those principles and then also to work with sales managers to make sure that they really become better leaders for their teams and really support their sales team in any way they can, I think will also contribute to the bottom line and to your success in your job. Well, that's a wrap. We've run a bit over, Devin. Lots to talk about.
1: So much to talk about.
0: Yeah, as always, thank you so much for joining today, Devin. It's been great chatting to you and for anybody who's listening to the podcast. Also, thank you so much for listening. As I said before, it's been great recently to connect with so many enablers through the virtual and in person conferences. So, really appreciate the community and being able to contribute. Thank you so much, everybody. And don't forget to subscribe to the State of Sales Enablement podcast on any major podcast platform and also the newsletter on LinkedIn with the same name, the State of Sales Enablement, where we will share all the resources that we have covered as part of this discussion with you so you can stay up to date with the fast evolving sales enablement space. Thank you so much as always, and I will speak to you soon. Bye-bye.